0: Another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, June 29th, twenty ten.
1: Uh
0: uh-uh. oh, I'm in a mood. I'm in a mood. I find myself making geeky noises to <laughs> my theme music. Oh no, this is not a good sign. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal here is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You know, Walter Martin, the late Dr. Walter Martin, he used to say that he taught systematic theology, and the way he did it was by teaching the cults. Uh, Not the cults of the football team here in Indianapolis, but CULTS, like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the uh, Christian Science, the Mind Science cults, things like that. And when you realized how the leaders and people in these uh, false religions that pawn themselves off as a form of Christianity in many cases, when you look at what they teach and you you go, wait a second, what is it the Bible says again? It, it It causes you to come back and go, Okay, we've got to look closer at the scriptures. Well, in a similar way, um, in teaching discernment here at Fighting for the Faith, you are, in a sense, learning some basic systematic theology. You're learning how to think biblically and how to think critically and to understand what the major contours and categories are of sound Christian doctrine and theology. And the way you learn that is against the foil of false teachers. And so... Uh, the reason why we do that is is because <clears throat> sound doctrine just doesn't exist in a vacuum, and we as Christians are, in a very real way, soldiers in, in the army of Christ. And so by teaching you how to use theology in the trenches, so to speak, or learning theology in the trench, I, I think it, 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 well, you might suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and might have to go see your therapist after a while. It depends on how often you're shot at. But you'll still learn theology, so that's the positive side of it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta work on my salesmanship. I don't think I'm selling anyone on that one. <sighs> you know, it's a gorgeous day today. It, um, and I don't know where you what the weather's like in your neck of the woods. And you'll notice if you listen to Pirate Christian Radio for any length of time, we don't do weather updates. <laughs> yeah, the reason why is it's internet based radio. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Well, uh, you know, here at Pirate Christian Radio, it's time for our weather update. What I'd like you to do is uh, open up your window and stick your head outside. And if your hair gets wet while it's raining, and, you know, and if you can't see and you're blinded by the light, then it's sunny. And (laughs) Again, I think I'm in a weird mood. I'm hearing crickets. Maybe I should just talk about what we're going to talk about on the program today. Okay, today's... (laughs) I am in a weird. I don't. I have no idea what's going. You know, yesterday, after I got off the air, I gotta admit that sermon review that we did yesterday from uh, the C3 Exchange, the church that tore down their cross. Oh man, Michael Dowd. Now he he's not a pastor there. He was a special speaker, which means that we still have yet to do a Ian Lawton uh, sermon review. But hang in there because uh, we'll be doing an Ian Lawton sermon review before too long. He's uh, queued up in my uh, in my Sermon collection, if you and if you know what I mean. So uh, give it a week or two. We'll probably do an Ian Lawton. But anyway, after uh, reviewing Michael, uh, uh, Michael Dowd's sermon yesterday, good night. I mean, that was probably one of the worst things I have heard in a long time. I was actually somewhat as, uh, upset and despondent after reviewing that sermon. Today was a little I, – I, I actually got out of the uh, studio a little bit today, was able to run a few errands and see the sunlight and and put the windows down and enjoy the the really it it wasn't a, it's not a hot day here in Indy it's uh it's you know it's in the mid 70s sun is out the, there's little white puffy clouds up in the sky it's just a perfect perfectly mild summer day and and i was able to get outside which can help put me in a better mood maybe i was just suffering from serotonin uh deprivation <clears throat> yeah <clears throat> Why am I sharing this? I have no idea, but I do these, I talk about things from time to time. Okay. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we're going to begin today with a little bit of email. And I've got email on, uh, regarding George Ellerick. I've uh, got email from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Always like to hear from Pastor Charmley. In fact, our sermon review today, we're going to be listening to a good sermon from Pastor Charmley on prayer. He's, um, it's not actually a sermon. It's uh, from a midweek Bible study that he did, but it's a little bit it, – it, it's still – he does a great job of exe- exegeting uh, text. And uh, we're going to be listening to that today, just some good stuff uh, after yesterday. And George Ellerick you – know, oh <sighs> uh, yeah, I, I need to recharge the, uh, the, the the Christian batteries, if you know what I mean. And uh, and then let's see here. So we got email. We got Pastor Charmley. We got a couple of emails on George Ellerick. We've got uh, yeah a news story. The Supreme Court says that that Christian group uh, at the, that law school can't bar gay uh, gay people oh, oh, homosexuals and still get school funding. So Supreme Court has ruled about that. We'll take a look at that. And then depending on time, um, I may or may not get to this Perry Noble piece. Perry Noble has. Uh, a piece that he's he just put out on his blog regarding vision, and if I don't get to that, then I'll get to it on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. But uh, I, the one I do want to get to, and I will save time for, is Ed Stetzer has written a piece. Uh, he's he's now a, a contributor over at ChristianPost.com, and the name of his piece is "Calling for Contextualization." Now, if you're familiar with that term, th- this is uh, this is a term that is. Uh, experienced controversy over the past couple of years in light of the fact that uh, some pastors have uh in the name of contextualization have uh, done some pretty outrageous things and uh, you know even though i like the fact that mark driscoll preaches the gospel clearly uh the, in the name of contextualization he has actually done some stuff that uh, it leaves me scratching my head going huh um, for instance, he's, uh, he's better known, uh, in his earlier days, I don't know if he still does this, but, uh, he would from time to time let some pretty colorful, um, language, uh, fly from his lips while preaching, uh, but all in the name of contextualization. And then you think back to his sermon series that he did on the uh, song of Solomon. Holy guacamole. Yeah, there's reasons why I don't uh, review any of the sermons from that particular series here at Fighting for the Faith because it it borders on pornography, you know, audio pornography, and uh, and but all in the name of contextualization. So and there's other pastors in the seeker driven movement who've you know taken their leads and cues from uh you know, you know from guys like Driscoll and others in the name of contextualization. So Ed Stetzer has written a piece called Calling for Contextualization and uh, we'll we'll read part of that maybe all of it I don't know it just depends and I'll comment appropriately. And then uh like I, like I said earlier uh we're going to have a good sermon uh, good Bible lesson from Pastor Gervais and Nicholas Edward Charmley on prayer. And he's uh, preaching from a text or teaching from a text in the book of Acts. That'll be in hour number two. So it's going to be a good program today. It's a beautiful day here in uh, central Indiana. I don't know what the weather is like in your neck of the woods. But make yourself comfortable. Feel free to uh, relax. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we don't have a problem with that. Uh, keep in mind that the uh, biblical prohibition when it comes to alcohol is drunkenness. That's where the sin lies. Uh, in in much the same way God has given us different gifts of wonderful things, we can abuse those gifts and misuse them to our harm. And at that point, uh, that's when things, uh, well, they become a sin. And so, well, you don't have a problem with that. If you want to exercise while listening and fighting for the faith or mow your uh, lawn, don't have a problem with that either. The important thing is is that you have a good listener experience. So... Uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, which means uh, we're going to do some email here. All right. Now, I need to remind you all, when you email me, um, not, not only tell me your name, but also tell me what city or... Uh, a city or country or state that you're from, so that uh, I can let people know, you know, from where you are writing and emailing me. And our first email comes to us from Jeff, and I do not know where Jeff lives, but he wrote regarding George George Ellerick, and uh, <clears throat> here's what he had to say. Now, if, if you haven't listened to the George Ellerick interview. Yeah, again, I just asked the question, can you deny every single major cardinal uh, doctrine of historic Christian faith and still be a Christian? <clears throat> That's my question. But uh, Jeff writes, he says, um, in the words of Thomas Wolfe, has anyone heard such ineffable twaddle since time began? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, Jeff, that uh, you you didn't have – your spirit man wasn't um, built up and uh, and strengthened as a result of hearing George Ellerich. i That's my assumption based on what you're saying. <clears throat> but uh, Jeff writes, he says, thank you for asking the right questions and then simply letting him explain himself. He seems like a nice guy, and he really is actually. Uh, but he has allowed himself to be led down a very confused and disorienting path. The way he darted from half-formed idea to half-baked heresy and then back again reminded me of watching a hummingbird darting back and forth from blossom to blossom and then smashing into a window. (laughs) (laughs) Nice word picture, by the way. Uh, Jeff continues. He says, obviously, there is a point of diminishing returns on this, quote, immerse myself in Hebraic culture Mem. I forgot the exact number, but Ehic asserted that every Hebrew word can have up to forty different meanings. I think he said every every uh, every verse in the Hebrew Bible can have up to seventy different interpretations. I mean at that point i mean th- i mean, if e- each and every verse can have seventy valid interpretations, then that basically means the Bible means nothing that 's what it <clears throat> sorry, let me get back to the email. <clears throat> Jeff says, Well, if you think about it, this is true of any language. Take the English word draw. I can draw a picture. I can draw water from a well. I can descend into a draw, which is a ditch. I can have the draw on somebody, and I can watch as the evening draws down, and I can give up and call it a draw. The context, though, determines the meaning. And that is what we have in God's word. I, I think he was probably using the forty different meanings assertion to reinforce the postmodern assertion that the meaning of the text is determined by the reader's experience rather than the author's intent. Well said, Jeff. And that's exactly what's going on here. And that you'll, again, those who buy into postmodernity, it ends up leaving basically giving them a theological lobotomy. Uh, because you know, they're they're so much into playing with words and meanings and not really paying attention to the fact that words have a meaning within a context in a sentence, uh, and understand that I subscribe to and I believe it is absolutely the correct way of looking at scripture when you interpret it in light of the historical grammatical method. The words mean things in context, and this was a great sentence that you talked about, the word draw. In each and every instance uh, that you, uh, Jeff, that you gave here in this uh, paragraph about how you can draw a picture, you can draw water from a well, you can descend into a draw, you can have a draw on somebody, you can watch as the evening draws down, and I can give up and call it a draw. In each and every instance, people who understand the English language would ha- had no problem whatsoever switching in their mind to the different definitions of the word draw. And they, you weren't speaking gibberish to us. We all knew exactly what you were saying when you wrote these words. Why? Because that that word has a meaning in context. Great point. Great point. Jeff continues. He says, with his attitude towards scripture, I wonder how he would handle the Bereans from Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 11, which says, now the Bereans were of a more noble character Then the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Well, I mean, well, we've got to come up with 70 different interpretations for this verse. I mean, none of which I'm sure would have anything to do with truth. (laughs) Sorry. Jeff continues, he says, when you think about it, which scriptures were the Bereans checking? Well, obviously, they would have been checking the prophecies about Jesus because that is what Paul continually preached. Yeah, the Old Testament scriptures is what the Bereans pulled out. These scriptures included the whole gospel, including the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. They read it in context, understood its application, and they accepted it as true now, let us uh, rewrite it to be more palatable, palatable for emergence. <clears throat> so this is Jeff's attempt at postmodern emergent speak. Let's see how he does here. All right, here we go. So here's Jeff's attempt at postmodern emergent speak. Now, the emergence were of a more tolerant and open character than the Bereans. <laughs> For they received the message with bemu- with a bemused grin and examined the scriptures every day in community. And each conversation resulted in several alternative ideas, but all agreed that it helped their progress toward a greater social consciousness. <laughs> that is brilliant. That Jeff, great email, man. That was a great sentence. I, hang on, I've got to make a note to myself here. <laughs> I'm going to turn I'm going to take this I'm going to put it into a, a, a small post and uh link to it on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, this uh, great great points. Yeah, but that this whole emergence speak. Oh, wow, that was brilliant. I'm going to make I'm going to send that out on Facebook and Twitter. So I'm going to make a note to myself to hear. Okay, got an email actually more than one. I'm I'm going to read two of them. I got more than two even from uh Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley who's uh uh, I think he's in Hanley. Um, hang on a second here. Yeah, that's right. Hanley uh, Stoke-on-Trent the on Trent in uh, the U.K. Uh, Pastor Charmley writes, he says, Dear Chris, I, I've been catching up with the new podcasts, and I'm listening to the Matrix sermon from the Verve. <laughs> Viva la Verve. Um, in, in listening to the pastors disparaging uh, faith in Christ, I think I may have discovered one of the problems with American evangelicalism today and the root cause of all of this. It takes more than faith stuff. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've got audio somewhere from it, it, the guys over at uh, Issues, etc. play it frequently. Uh, but it's Rick Warren basically saying it takes more than faith to please God, I mean, which is just f- f- flat-out false. Um, but uh, Pastor Charlie writes, he says, From what the man said, it seemed that his definition of faith in Christ... Means to assent to certain facts about Jesus. Now, this is an important point. Listen carefully. He says this is in this indeed in itself is not enough. The trouble is is that is not the historic Christian definition of faith at all. In fact, it is the definition of faith proposed by uh, Sandemanian uh, by the Sandamanian, uh Sandemanian heresy. Uh, Sandemanianism, briefly put, defines faith merely as assensus. Osens, Uh, the acceptance of certain facts about Jesus and that all who accept those facts are saved thereby. The historic church has always recognized that faith is more than the acceptance of historical facts. A.A. Hodge, the phrases uh, pastuane, ace, or epi are are always used to express trust and confidence uh, terminating upon God or upon Christ as mediator. We are often said to believe or credit Moses or other teachers of the of the truth. But we can we can believe in or on Christ or God alone. Um, That's from Outlines of Theology uh, from 1973. Charles Hodge, the primary idea of faith is trust. That's from Systematic Theology uh, from uh, 1873. And then uh, Westcott writes, he says, quote, uh, the uh, the belief is in Christ and not in any priest, uh, uh, and not in any propositions about Christ. Now this is this is a great point and uh, this is something we've talked about here on the program, uh, and this is something that I think that historically has been the case, and I think was hammered out very clearly in the Protestant Reformation that when we talk about saving faith, faith being trust. It's and trust always having having an object and that object is Christ. That there are three fundamental components that make up saving faith, and the way the reformers and others have talked about it is is that you have uh, notitia, you have this, you have the knowledge, the facts, so to speak, the historical facts about the story. You have a sensus, a sense that the uh, the the facts are historically correct, but then the the third component is fiducia, that's uh, faith and trust that uh the that the story told is about Christ and that Christ's death was for you so you're putting your faith in on uh you're you're trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so the way the story would, if you put the three together it will go like this you have uh you have um uh notitia. we can say that Jesus Christ was born in uh in uh Bethlehem uh, roughly about 0 uh, zero AD, uh, you know, one BC, two BC, somewhere in there. And as Luke writes in his gospel that, uh, Quirinius was the governor of Syria, you know, uh, you know and so you, you got uh, you, uh, Caesar Augustus sending out a, uh, wanting to take a census, all these historical facts that Jesus Christ uh, lived in that region at that time. Uh, that he had 12 disciples, that he healed people, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried and, and rose again on the third day. All of those are historical facts, but saving faith doesn't say, basically says, yes, those facts are true. Okay, that's the faith that demons have. That's demon faith. Okay, even the devil knows that those facts are true. Saving faith then looks at the object of those stories, the the primary character, that being Christ, and what he did, and it has a theological and personal significance in that it calls us to trust in that Jesus from those historical events and to trust that his death on the cross was for your sins. That's a theological statement, that he is offering you forgiveness and you can trust him. That's the idea here. But let me continue with Pastor Charmley's email. He says, Now it is true that uh, Sandemanian, uh, the Sandemanian view of faith is really uh, the only one that works with a semi-Pelagian or Pelagian theology, as such a belief is indeed in the power of man, and thus it, it it is perhaps no surprise that proponents of the altar call system have come to believe that faith is simply crediting the Bible with being trustworthy and nothing more. While this is a part of the biblical faith, Orthodox theologians all agree that the primary part of faith and the primary meaning of the Greek words is trusting God in Christ, not having read either Hodge or any decent theologian at all. The heirs of revivalism are left with people who, by their faulty definition, have believed, yet who live as unbelievers because biblically they are. So they look for something else. This explains the denigration of faith not it's not an improvement because it doesn't actually deal with the real problem which is the, which is the wrong and frankly heretical definition of faith and they light upon follow me now as expected from the school that appeals to the all the whosoever wills in the bible uh, there's one revelation 22:17 uh, that is relevant the fellow says that Jesus's main call was follow me let's see my leather-bound cruden's concordance inherited from my grandmother gives 17 occurrences, including the callings of the apostles, and John ten twenty seven, including parallel passages in the synoptics. I stopped counting the believe passages referring to Jesus after 60. In fact, the idea of believing in Jesus is far and above the most common of the two ideas, believing and following. There are many more calls to believe in Christ than there are to follow him. Yet, here is a most interesting point. Far and above the greatest number of these are in John's gospel. If one excluded John, then one could make the case that follow is indeed the most common call. I think we all see the problem at this point. You just can't exclude John's gospel. The man refers to it, but he has no idea what it actually teaches. It is. Uh, it, it seems to be just a repository of isolated text. I suggest he read it through and then reread it through again with the help of a good commentary such as Westcott or Calvin or Carson. Now, I've got to say something here. I've got to be careful, Pastor Charmley, because if I, if I suggest that somebody reads you know, Calvin's Institutes or anything written by Calvin, people might call me a crypto-Calvinist. So I've got to be careful here. So, anyway, such as Westcott or Calvin or Carson, though I suspect Carson would be beyond him. I also suggest that he stop watching so many movies and start actually studying the Bible. It might <laughs> help. Um, and then uh, Pastor Charmy, Charmley sent me a follow-up email that uh, gives a little bit more information on uh, uh Andrew Fuller, the English particular Baptist theologian who wrote against Sodomianism, uh, so- uh, writes, quote, The foundation of whatever is distinguishing in the system seems to relate to the nature of justifying faith. This, Mr. Sandeman, constantly represents as the bare belief of the bare truth, uh, and that's from his book, The Complete Works of the Reverend Andrew Fuller. Uh, Pastor Vince said, quote, if you come up to to me and and said, I believe in you, like you said, I believe you're Vince and you're the pastor of Verve, I'd... Be like Big Whoop, whether you believe it or not, it's true. Now that strikes me as a very odd use of language, and I'm sensitive to odd uses of language, as it often betrays heresy in cults. What are offered are propositions, the belief or otherwise, of is a matter of fact. Compare Sandeman, as quoted uh, by Fuller, quote, Everyone who obtains a just notion of the person and work of Christ or whose notion corresponds to what is testified of him is justified and finds peace, peace with God simply by that notion. Notion, assent to facts, is what saves not trusting Christ. Contrast the hymn writer and theologian Joseph Hart, 1712-68, uh, uh, to 68, who, who wrote, Venture on him, venture holy, let no other trust intrude none but jesus can do helpless sinners good this wrong idea of faith from the movie the matrix and from sandemianism leads inevitably to a downplaying of faith and an upplaying of works and duties in short it leads to legalism If faith is not up to the task of sanctifying, and thus that role must be given to the law, faith is then something little and really rather contemptible for infants in Christ, and that faith is not really faith at all. If this thesis is true, namely that popular American evangelicalism's formal definition of faith is, in fact, Sandeman's, not Paul's, then this goes a long way toward explaining the powerlessness of popular evangelicalism. Great point, Pastor Charmley. I completely agree. And again, wonderful email. Okay, one more email here. Steve writes, and Steve is in uh, Paramus, New Jersey. Steve writes, he says, this is regarding George Elric. And uh, he says, Dear Chris, wow, there was nothing even remotely Christian about anything George Elric said at all. Now, George seemed like a likable and honest enough guy. I admire his authenticity about struggling with certain truths. At least he puts things openly on the table. Way too uh, way too much in his uh, views are somewhere out in space to concisely comment on, so I'll just hit the main themes. The whole of his eschatology, the last one-third of the interview, was a laundry list of presumption and error. But since it was almost a direct copy of Moltmann's Eschatology of Hope, which you covered extensively, that's all I'll say. The most glaring wound in Ellerick's way of thinking is, uh, is, the, is the order in which he is approaching truth. Simply put, he puts human culture and entom- etymology first. He uses the lens of man to interpret God. The correct way is to let God interpret man. Good point, good point. He demonstrated clearly that he is far more interested in social, cultural environment in which the Bible was written, and the nuance and possible interpretational opportunities afforded by the Hebrew language and culture, and other cultures uh, with sacred texts, that he is about what those that he is about what those texts actually says. What does that look like? For example, words like "son of God" and "Messiah" don't mean what they mean because. Uh, they were once used in another context to mean something else. Right. That's like someone calling me a jerk and my response being, oh, you see, he once referred to his Jamaican chicken lunch as a jerk, so I must assume that he was calling me a tasty Jamaican chicken dish. (laughs) It doesn't work. He tried to have it both ways, claiming he believes in objective truth, yet embraces the idea that there can be 70 different interpretations of any given Hebrew text. I wonder if the Hebrew language is... Uh, were a completely fr- uh, completely free of poetry and nuance, uh, saying exactly what is written, no more or no less, would it be as appealing to Elric or to Rob Bell? My guess is that if he didn't view Hebrew as having a wideness to it, he'd lose interest quickly. Case in point, according to him, the point of the Elijah Baal showdown was that God was dealing with the gods who were oppressive, and God was showing that cutting yourself for religion's sake is oppressive. Hmm. Which God instituted circumcision again? Ooh, good point. Elric strikes me as the classic liberal who says, I've already made up my mind about what I believe. Now let's crack open the scriptures and make some balloon animals. (laughs) <laughs> he clearly begins from a premise that uh, that narrowness is bad and that inclusiveness and embracing of things that appear uh, mutually exclusive is good. I heard him use that phrase several times, remarking about things that aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, particularly referring to Christ's resurrection. There's some merit to this case in point. Does God save uh, sovereignly or is it contingent upon our response to the gospel? Answer both. Salvation is only through the sovereign and unmerited gift of repentance and faith, yet it is always effectuated through man's response. Now, I would take issue with that. We've got to clear that up. Uh, God is the one who gives us faith. So, and yeah. Anyway, otherwise he would uh, believe in anonymous Christian uh, Christian's nonsense. Here's the thing, though. It is possible through God's wisdom and how he set up the universe, the laws that govern it, and yes, even logic itself, for two things that appear mutually exclusive to be simultaneously true. But that is not universally applicable. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility seem contradictory, yet both are true. But either Jesus rose from the dead bodily in chronos time or he didn't. There's no middle ground here. I'll hit one more major flaw. His ridiculous extrapolation of the word resurrection, meaning rebirth, not an actual coming back from the dead, maybe that would fly if there was only one passage in the New Testament that referred to Jesus' resurrection in some ambiguous way. However, the Gospels don't give some ethereal reference to resurrection. They give a descriptive account that on the third day, the corpse of Jesus was no longer in the tomb but was uh, up walking around, interacting with and being touched by his disciples, eating cooked fish and bread. It's hard to interpret that as anything else. But again, elric made up his mind before he even came to the scriptures. That's Steve from uh, Paramus, New Jersey. Thank you for the email. Great email. Good points. Good stuff. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We will be right back.
1: Relevance Shmelevance, we preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's emergence ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter and Whoa! Whoa, Jones checks McLaren against the boards and then passes to Padgett in left field. But wait, Booz Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slammed dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Paget are double-teaming Bowles-Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base! What a brilliant save that was! Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pommel horse, oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe, he's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud 9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did.
1: Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, president and founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They're designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit CARM.org, that's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount.
0: Warning, just because a word has different meanings doesn't mean it can mean nothing or anything you want it to mean. Context and grammar decide. need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see uh, two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're automatically signing up to contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and the ongoing mission of Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Fighting for the Faith, post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code six Uh, All right, moving along to the news here. From the Christian Post, headline reads, Supreme Court says Christian group can't bar gays and get school funding. This is by Michelle A. V. From the uh, Christian Post, the uh, story reads, The Supreme Court ruled on Monday that a public school has the legal right to deny a Christian campus group recognition and funding if it bars gays from becoming voting members and taking on leadership positions. Boy, this is a setback. I got to tell you. Um now listen, what does this mean? Just right off the bat. That means if this Christian group wants to continue at this school, they have to be an unrecognized group and they can't receive any school funding. If they receive school funding, they have to have they have to let gays in. Now, listen, I want to make something clear. Christ died on the cross for homosexual sins. And Christ loves homosexuals and wants them to repent and be forgiven of their sins every bit as much as he wants me to repent or you to repent and be forgiven of your sins, whether they be things like gossip, murder, lying, cheating, stealing, heterosexual uh, uh, sexual misconduct, Uh, or even homosexual uh, sins and perversions. Christ is an equal opportunity forgiver of sins. And this is problematic because uh, what this does is it basically makes it so that unrepentant homosexuals can take on a leadership role um, in a Christian campus group. Well, that compromises the gospel message and the message of the forgiveness of sins to the gays uh, that would basically come into the group group. And uh, take it over I mean, it, it, what's what's gets obliterated is the gospel itself, so this is a terrible, terrible decision on the part of the Supreme Court in a splintered five to four vote. The court ruled in favor of the uh, of the unusual school policy of the University of california 's Hastings College of Law in San Francisco. The policy says that all campus groups must allow everybody to join, even if the person disagrees with the group's values and views. The Christian Legal Society welcomes anyone regardless of their beliefs to join the Bible studies, uh, clarified Jordan Lawrence, an attorney with the Alliance Defense Fund that was on the team representing the Christian Legal Society um, uh, to the Christian Post. But the group requires voting members and officers to sign a statement of faith that includes, among other beliefs, a, a, a line about unrepentant participation in or advocacy of sexually immoral of a sexually immoral lifestyle as being inconsistent with the faith. Quote, "It's very frustrating the Supreme Court chose to rule on a policy that very few universities have," said Lawrence. "Well, now that the Supreme Court has ruled on this, every liberal university from here to uh Poughkeepsie, New York is going <clears> to <throat> yeah. The Alliance Defense Fund and CLS says that they expect, the Supreme Court, uh, they expect the Supreme Court ruling Monday to have little immediate effect because they are not aware of any other public university with the same exact policy as Hastings. However, they are concerned that in the long term, the ruling will put other student groups at risk. Quote, the Hastings policy actually requires CLS to allow atheists to lead its Bible studies and the college Democrats – to accept the election of Republican officers in order for the groups to be recognized on campus, explained the ADF senior legal counsel Gregory S. Baylor in a statement, quote, we agree with Justice Alito in his dissent that the court should have rejected this as absurd. Christian Legal Society has sued Hastings in order to receive recognition and funding from the school, but on Monday the Supreme Court upheld a lower court's decision that the Christian group's First Amendment rights were not violated by the policy. Quote, in requiring CLS to, in common with other student organizations to choose between welcoming all students and foregoing the benefits of official recognitions, we hold Hastings did not transgress constitutional limitations, said Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who wrote the majority opinion. CLS, it bears emphasis, seeks not parity with other organizations, but a preferential exemption from the Hastings policy. Justice Samuel Alito, however, said that the court's decision was a serious setback for freedom of expression in this country. So, uh, folks, real simple. Where the laws of the land contradict the teachings of Scripture, Christians cannot... Bend to the laws of the land. So what does the folks over at, you know, at this Christian Legal Society, uh, what are their options? To basically become like the Dead Poet Society, an outlaw organization, one that isn't recognized by the institution. And I'm going to tell you, now that this has come down, there's going to be a whole host of universities. Uh, liberal universities going to follow suit on this. You can expect it. Okay, moving along here, looking at my time. Okay, I will get to the, um, the uh, Perry Noble piece. The Perry Noble piece tomorrow uh, that I'm going to cover is called You've Got Vision, Big Deal. I'll talk about that tomorrow. But um, Ed Stetzer, the missiologist, uh, whom last week we, uh, I read his definition of missional, and he admits the term doesn't have a specific meaning, and he would never say to anybody, oh, you're using the word wrong. If there's no wrong way to use the word, there's no right definition of the word missional. So now he's got a piece, a recent piece, uh, that this was published on Sunday in the Christian Post, and it's called Calling for Contextualization. Now, I've already, at the beginning of the program, documented some of the abuses that have taken place in so-called Christian pulpits, all in the name of contextualization, anywhere from having uh, semi-pornographic uh, sermon series about uh, the Song of Solomon to flat-out cussing in the pulpit, all in the name of contextualization. Those are the abuses. But let's see what missiologist, uh, doctor of missiology, which probably that word probably doesn't mean anything either, Uh, Ed Stetzer writes about this. He says, For the past few years, the issue of contextualization has been intensely discussed and debated throughout the many discussions I have had, uh, listened in on, and, uh, and read, I have found some legitimate differences in perspective, but also some pretty serious misunderstandings concerning the nature of contextualization. I will spend several posts sharing my thoughts on the nature of contextualization and the need to contextualize. The place to start in this conversation is with an understanding of culture. So let me start with a bit of a personal journey. What is culture and why does it matter? I planted my first church in 1988 in the inner city of Buffalo, New York. I was planting a church way before church planting was an in thing to do. When I would tell people I was planting a church, they would look at me with a blank stare and ask if I was planting because uh, because couldn't I couldn't get a real job. I was 21 years of age. I didn't know anything about church planting. I graduated from college with a degree in biology and chemistry And I went to the inner-city, multiracial, urban poor people of Buffalo and just started knocking on doors and telling people about Jesus. I wore a suit and a tie and occasionally carried my Bible door to door. I might as well have ridden a, a bicycle and worn a backpack and said I was with the Mormons. God was so gracious and patient with me as a young man who didn't yet have a good grasp on how to approach the culture... He had sent me into, and by his grace, we were, uh, we were able to plant a church. But it was so hard. It took us years to grow uh, the church to a place where it could be self-sufficient and self-supporting. I believed in church planning, but I knew it, I needed so, uh, to become effective in making the gospel known and developing the church in areas where churches were desperately needed. Around that time, there was a pastor in California. I'll give you two guesses who it is who was getting a lot of attention for his strategy and effectiveness in making disciples. He was part of my tribe, so I started communicating with this guy, Rick Warren. Rick and I continued these conversations until I was finally able to get a, uh, get to a conference out in California. While there, I started to understand the importance of understanding culture. Regrettably, I concluded that the key to culturally relevant church planting uh, was in Hawaiian shirts and shoes without socks. So when I was t- going to plant my second church in Erie, Pennsylvania, a city that is part of the snow belt that gets a, uh, about at least 10 feet of snow each year, I showed up as a culturally relevant church planter wearing a Hawaiian shirt with uh, and shoes without socks. I found out very quickly that Warren's cultural relevance didn't connect with my culture, and to be fair, I should add that Warren does not wear Hawaiian shirts anymore, and I did not... And I did not when I preached there last fall, even though I was tempted. Over time, it became clear to me that we need to not only understand that culture matters, but that the particular culture we are in must be properly understood so we can best preach the gospel, make disciples and function as the church. I learned that as a pastor then uh, then studied it more in my Ph.D. work, my intentionally doing my Ph.D. in missiology to explore these issues, and then in my writing, so I'm passionate about this issue. Now, my personal example is an example of a minor cultural concern. I'll be addressing much more weighty issues in the days to come, yet it's important to, to first define culture. What is culture? There's a lot of talk about culture, but not always much clarity about what it really is. People shout about culture, but we have to think discerningly about what it is and how we engage culture. Harvey M. Kahn has a helpful article in the Evangelical Dictionary of Missions. There, he says, quote, we use the term culture to refer to the common ideas, feelings, and values that guide community and personal behavior, that organize and regulate what the group thinks and feels and does about God, the world, and humanity explains why the Sawi people of the Iranian Jawa regard betrayal as a virtue while the Americans see it as a vice. It undergirds the Korean horror of the idea of Westerners placing their elderly parents in retirement homes and the Western horror at the idea of the Korean veneration of their ancestors. It is the climate of opinion that encourages an Eskimo to share his wife with a guest, and hides the wife of an Iranian fundamentalist Muslim in a body-length veil. The the closest New Testament approximation for culture is cosmos, or world, but only when it refers to language-bound, organized human life, um, or the uh, sin-contaminated systems of values, traditions, and social structures of which we are all a part. What this means is that culture itself is not evil, but a composite of good and evil as understood biblically. "...values and vocations, customs and creations, beliefs and behaviors that characterize a particular people in a particular place. In any given culture, we can find both Imago Dei and idols, because all people are made in God's image and reflect that reality in some way. But all people are also sinners who exalt other gods while rejecting the Lord. Some parts of a culture can be considered good, while others must be seen as corrupt." We will talk more about this later, but those who say we should not engage the culture are using the word culture in a way that evangelical missiologists do not use the term. I'll be quoting from Kahn's article in the coming days. Why does culture matter? Through my experiences in church planting in Buffalo and Erie, I learned an important lesson in church planting, a mistake that unfortunately is made all too often today. Too many church planters Uh, plant in their heads and not in their communities. This happens in two ways. Some are, quote, Bible-only types, and others are model-inspired, and both make the same mistake of ignoring their culture. It's easy to develop a solid theological grasp on the essential components of the church and the nature of the gospel without understanding the way in which biblically divine church will look and function in differing cultural contexts. The Bible-only folks are convinced they need only... They they only need to know Scripture in order to reach the people in a given community. I think we all need more scriptural fidelity, but less. Uh, but unless they can also exegete the culture, uh, they will be ill-equipped to identify idols and understand the way in which sin has brought ruin to the community. Others see an effective model of, of church flourish in one context and believe that they only need to replicate that in order to reach... Uh, the people in their context, they too avoid the hard study, uh, work of studying their culture and instead seek to import the work and con- uh, conclusions drawn from different contexts. Both types are hard at work, primarily planting and uh leading in their heads instead of their communities. This is bad missiology that re- disregards the importance of knowing and engaging culture. <sighs> okay, that was all part one on this this important of importance of contextualization. And to which I basically say, duh. I mean, folks, listen, we all know, especially here in the United States, that we all have a shared culture and that there are different subcultures within our primary culture here in the United States. And this is also uh, true in other places abroad, in the U.K., uh, you know, you you've got Scots, you've got you got you know, you've got people who are are Irish. You've got different competing cultures there in the United States. We have different immigrant groups. You got Hispanics, you got Italians, you got Polish people. You've got uh, you've got Jewish communities. We we all understand that there's different subcultures. Got it? Okay. And if it, it, the thing is, is that this is like basic common sense. If any of you all have ever seen the movie, the Steve Martin movie, The Jerk. Okay, you know what I mean. It's it's hilarious, and the reason why the movie is hilarious is because it mix it it plays it plays two cult subcultures against each other, and it's hilarious, and it's funny, and it's stupid, and and you get what I'm saying, okay? And I mean, I mean, if a pastor or a church planter doesn't understand the subculture that he is speaking with and is not able to effectively communicate with them and and always appears to be an outsider of that subculture then he, i i guarantee the people in that subculture will not warm up to him and it may impact his ability to preach the gospel and to disciple people okay that being the case the biblical message that we've been given to give is the same for all nations it's Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in jesus' name and it's it's sound biblical doctrine it doesn't matter if you're german it doesn't matter if you're hispanic it doesn't matter if you're african american it doesn't matter if you're it, it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what your subculture is it doesn't matter if you're into classic rock it doesn't matter if you're into if you're emo and and into and, and dressing goth it doesn't matter. The message and the doctrines are the same. So, in that being the case, you do have to understand your subculture. But I'm uh, wh- I I read this article and I didn't learn anything. It's just like a complete duh. I mean, and the other thing i I've just my observation is how hard is it really to communicate to people? In, in, that basically share the the same primary metaculture that you do. Here in the United States, I mean, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but in the United States, people in the United States that are here who've grown up here, the way I've lived here and grown up here, regardless of whether you live in, in Southern California, Seattle, or the Midwest, or New York, or Connecticut, or down south, We've got the same restaurants, we speak the same language, we buy the same clothes from the same stores, and we have the same chain restaurants that we all go to. Let me see if I can list a few of them. Chili's, um, the Spaghetti Factory, Buca de Beppo, um, the Olive Garden, McDonald's, Burger King, uh, Arby's. Uh, You get what I'm saying here? We all pretty much... We all share common experiences. We, you know, even though you might root for different sports teams, we all root for football or we all root for baseball. We all have the same president. We have the same capital. Okay. So, as far as I'm concerned, how difficult, really? is it to share the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross to somebody who is part of a different, quote, subculture. But shares the same metaculture that I'm a part of. Now, forgive me if I'm wrong, but if you want to email me on this, you can. I'm assuming that those of you who are listening to this radio program and to this podcast— that some of you root for different baseball teams. Some of you have different tastes in music than I do. So, you, know, you know, some of you might even like rap or hip hop. I don't particularly care for it. But it doesn't matter. We, I share the same language as you. And you get on your computer. And even though we might have different subcultural tastes, you hear the gospel and you hear sound biblical doctrine here on this radio station. And you don't even get to see what I wear. There are days, believe it or not, that when I'm here in the studio, I am wearing Hawaiian shirts. Many times, I am in a t-shirt and shorts and my favorite Birkenstock sandals. And no, I don't smoke pot. I don't know what it is, but people see Birkenstocks and they think that you're a pot smoker. I I don't get it. Anyway, so uh, subculture... (laughs) You get what I'm saying here. You can't even see me. And those of you who are my friends on Facebook, you've seen a couple of pictures of me and probably go, oh, that's what Roseboro looks like. But not many of you have actually seen me in person. I don't, you don't know what cologne I wear or if I even use a deodorant. I might be sitting here just reeking of body odor and it doesn't matter because I am communicating to you in English and you understand English. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, he he lives in the UK and he writes in, uh, in emails to this program regularly. We're going to be listening to a lesson of his here in the second hour. How many of you have met the man? Do you know what he wears? Do you know if he likes, you know, uh, what are his likes and his dislikes? Does it even matter? I mean, he. Um, I've, to, I've said it before. I mean, I know very little about the UK. I've never been there. I'm hoping to go there very, well, within the year. I'm hoping to go there, okay? It's a long story. I'll have to explain after I get all the ducks lined up. And anyway, you'll get what I'm saying. I hope to go there soon. But, I mean, if, you, if somebody were to hand me a map of the United Kingdom and say, could you find Hanley? I'd be, huh? What's a Hanley? What's stoke on the trend? I don't get it. I don't understand it. Okay? I don't drink warm beer. prefer it cold. Um, I don't have a British accent. And I murder many of the British pronunciations of words. And yet I have listeners in the UK. If all of this contextualization were so important, how on earth... Can Ed Stetzer explain the fact that I have listeners to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio in the U.K., in France, in Germany, in Singapore, in uh, New Zealand, in Australia, um, in Israel? I mean, there's people who are listening to this program in Saudi Arabia and, and in Dubai. How is this even possible? I don't dress like them. I don't, many of you folks who are listening, I don't speak the same as you do. I have slightly different slang or big difference in slang. I don't think I have an accent. And many of you listening to me think, oh, Rosebro, he's got a, a thick American accent from Southern California. And yet somehow I'm able to communicate to you sound biblical doctrine and biblical discernment. And why? Because these truths transcend all of our cultures. And they apply to each and every one of us as human beings, as part of the world, the cosmos. So I don't think this whole idea of contextualization is really as important as Stetzer is making it out to be. I think there's a huge overemphasis on this. Huge overemphasis. That being the case, when you're planting a church, you have more, you're, you've got your feet on the ground and you have face-to-face contact and you have relationships that are far more complex and in-depth than you would with me and you having a relationship over the radio the way we do as you're listening. And I understand you need to understand that subculture. For instance, let me give you an example. It took me a while to understand the emergent culture, but I had to immerse myself in it and stop and listen. So that, I, so that I could effectively communicate to them because there were certain nuances to the things that they were concerned about that if I just didn't understand them, I wouldn't be able to effectively communicate. I think that there's an aspect to this that is true and that there's a huge overemphasis on this where there's much, much abuse going on in the name of contextualization. I think you need to understand that it's important to understand the people you are reaching out to, especially if they're part of a subculture or a different culture than you are. And at the same time, that your primary job is not to be an expert in culture, but to be an expert in preaching Christ and him crucified and an expert in preaching the scriptures and teaching the gospel and teaching sound biblical doctrine and discipling people in the full counsel of the word of God. That transcends all cultures and transcends even contextualization. So, yeah, I, all of the stuff, I, I see what's happening is, is that these calls for contextualization and all this kind of stuff, it creates ways in which people latch onto excuses for not preaching God's word all in the name of reaching people in the name of because contextualization is so important. Yeah, culture plays a role. You have to be aware of it. Otherwise you make silly, stupid mistakes. But if you're human, you're gonna make mistakes and you learn from them. The primary goal though, the primary thing is the word of God and the preaching of Christ and him crucified. And that doesn't need to be contextualized, especially if you live in the same metaculture as the people you're trying to reach. Something to keep in mind. Okay, we are up on our second break. When we come back, we have a fantastic, um, it's not a sermon, it's a a Wednesday night Bible study, in-depth look at uh, the subject of prayer by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. You don't want to miss it. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
1: Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: This
0: is the air I breathe. This is the air I
2: breathe. I've had enough!
0: Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud 9 Living. Cloud 9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud 9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud 9 Living, visit com forward slash cloud nine. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud nine. You'll be glad that you did. We're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Now, Pastor Charmley sent this to me recently on a second here. I need to uh, cue up the uh, sermon review music. The good, the bad, and the ugly review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is actually from a Wednesday night Bible study by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Bethel Evangelical Free Church In the UK, Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) I'm sure I'll be getting an email. It's uh, from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And it's a fantastic lecture on sermon on prayer. Now, what you need to listen for God's word is it taught in context. Is it decide what the agenda is? If so, is Pastor Charmley correctly handling the word of truth? Or is he twisting it and deceiving you and making it say things that it doesn't say in the hopes of grinding his own axe and basically moving forward his own agenda? Nah, Pastor Charmley doesn't ever do that. <laughs> so without any further ado, here is Pastor Well, let me kill the music. Here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley prayer.
2: Our scripture reading this evening is found in the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 11 verses 1 through 13. Luke 11 verses 1 through 13. came to pass that as he, that is Jesus, was praying in a certain place, when he ceased one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give it to you I say to you though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs so I say to you ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened the son asks for bread from any father among you Will he give him a stone? Or will he ask for a fish? Will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or will he ask for an egg? Will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We trust God's blessing to rest on the reading of his holy word. Now we have been considering... In these Wednesday night meetings, (coughs) Christian doctrine, we have been looking at, the last few weeks, the means of grace, that is to say, those means by which God communicates his blessings to his people. And we saw that they are, first of all, and most importantly, in century, the word of God, the Bible, is the great means by which God gives his blessing to his people. Secondly, there are the sacraments or ordinances, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, which are intended to communicate a blessing to his people. And thirdly, we come to prayer, prayer as a means by which God blesses his people. Now of course, prayer is not peculiar to Christianity, it is not unique to Christians. Everybody, who has any sort of religious beliefs at all, engages in something that could be described as prayer. One of the five pillars of Islam is prayer five times a day. The Muslim will fall down, facing Mecca, and recite the prayers. And yet, Christian prayer is unique. And it is unique, first of all, because it is directed to the one true God who has revealed himself in the Bible. Human religion is all based upon human ideas about God, and all of those are affected by sin, and they are false. But what are the specifics in which Christian prayer is different? Well, our text contains one of the occasions on which Jesus taught what we know as the Lord's Prayer. The other occasion that we have recorded is in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, Verse 7 we read, when you pray, says Jesus, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so we have these two occasions that is recorded that Jesus taught that this prayer. There are, of course, subtle variations between the two. And indeed, if you're if you have a new King James, with notes at the bottom of the page, you will note that there are more variations in some manuscripts. And this is only to be expected if it is repeated on more than one occasion. That it would be slightly different. But the content is the same. The, the phrasing is slightly different. The content is exactly the same. And whereas in Matthew he says, after this manner to give the authorised version of reading after this manner say in Luke he says when you pray say not after this manner say but say these words and so we see that the Lord's prayer is both a pattern for prayer as set out in Matthew and it is a form that Christians may use as set out here Jesus is saying here specifically this is a form for our use. Indeed one of the older writers uh, John Cumming who was himself a Presbyterian and a man who tended to use free prayer writes in his commentary on Luke that the more he used the Lord's prayer as a form the richer and deeper he found it and the more Rewarding. Not that of course he replaced using his own words, but that he regularly rehearsed the very words that the Lord has given and thought on them as he prayed. Obviously, there is no blessing in repeating a form without thinking about it. That is precisely, or that is part of what Jesus was condemning in Matthew when he spoke of the heathen, who think they will be heard for their many words, and their vain repetitions, and you will recall the heathen, the priests of Baal, the prophets of Baal, in First Kings, leaping upon the sacrifice and crying out from morning till night, O oh Baal, hear me, Baal, hear us, morning till noon. And that's the sort of thing the heathens did, they repeated these mantra-like words over and over and over again. But the Lord's Prayer is simple, it is short, and it is deeply profound. So we see, first of all, what is the nature of Christian prayer, secondly, what are the parts of Christian prayer, and thirdly, we consider the privilege of Christian prayer. First of all, what is the nature of Christian prayer? Well, you can see from the text here, it is speaking to God. It is incredibly simple. And this is why the mystics throughout the history of the church have looked down upon this. They said there must be more
0: to prayer. Than- Listen to this distinction. He is distinguishing between Christian prayer and mysticism. And this is an important distinction that needs to be made today, especially in light of the fact that people are making claims in Christian churches, of all places, that the way you grow spiritually is not by reading the Bible to understand it, but by using it as kind of a springboard into a mystical experience. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to pray, to communicate to our personal God and what I mean, I mean personal I don't mean that he's personal only to me I mean the fact that he has a personality that he can be communicated with talked to petitioned praised worshipped yep this is important there must be some sort of
2: strange exercise you can do repeating words over and over again to try and get some sort of message from God direct your consciousness but there's nothing like that in the Bible prayer is not some mystical activity we engage in to have some unutterable experience it is simply talking to God and it is so simple and yet so incredibly profound here we are upon the earth Here we are, the creatures God has made, and there he is, the God who holds our breath, the God who has made us, the High and Holy One who inhabits eternity, and we can speak to him. And he says, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, speaking to God, ...as our Father in heaven. It is is as simple as that. Speaking to God. Making our... ...requests known to Him. Making our needs known to Him. It is speaking to God. And of course, first of all, if we are to speak to God... ...we must come... ...in faith. It is necessary... ...to come in faith, as... ...we read in the epistle to the Hebrews... And chapter 6, chapter 11, rather, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we must come in faith. And here again we see something deeply profound and amazing. The prayer of faith is not some special sort of prayer, it is the description of all Christian prayer, the prayer of faith. is the prayer of those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a prayer for those who are particularly holy, who are particularly close to God. It doesn't mean a prayer that's without any doubt at all. But it's a prayer of the one who believes in Jesus Christ.
0: Hear, hear, amen and amen. Oh, this is good. God willing, tomorrow and the
2: Thursday Club, we should be looking at the transfiguration of the Lord, <coughs> how the Lord Jesus Christ was transfigured, and the amazing thing about the transfiguration is that he came down to the mountain and was confronted with this situation with the demon possessed young man and he says to the, the young man the young man's father says to Jesus if you can help and Jesus replies if you believe and the man replies Lord I believe help my unbelief and his son is healed Here is not a man who prayed without any wavering at all but a man who acknowledged before the Lord Jesus, before God, standing there before him, God in the flesh, who acknowledged that he had unbelief, and yet, Lord, I believe. Well, so it is. We come with some unbelief, but we come in faith, though feeling our weakness. And we come in faith in God, in Christ, he is not that you must be absolutely convinced that God will answer this prayer it is that you must be trusting in Jesus trusting in Christ for salvation that is Christian faith and it is a response to God all Christian prayer is a response to God because God has first spoken to us he has spoken in the word, he has revealed himself in Jesus He has shown us his love. He has by his own power drawn us to himself. And then, then we pray. We may use the example, of course, this is quite a spectacular one, of Paul's conversion. Paul was converted, struck down off his horse, laid low on the ground, and Jesus spoke to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And only then could it be said of him, whilst he was converted, behold, he is praying. Prayer is a response to God. And so the Christian comes in response to the word of God in prayer. The word of God comes first, and then we pray. And he's asking God... Again the mystics look down on this and they say Surely prayer is not just coming to God with our requests But again they are quite mistaken Again the mystics have confused matters And are despising what God does not despise What God has in fact commanded Philippians 4 and verse 6 Paul says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Let your requests be known to God. Ask Him. And again, the parable that follows the Lord's Prayer in our text is about asking. The power of the the friend, and surprise guests at midnight it's about asking ask and it will be given to you seek and it will be and you will find knock and it will be opened to you it is all about asking Jesus does not say it is a low and poor sort of prayer that only asks of God but he says ask of God he says that we are to ask Here is that wonderful privilege that we, if we are the children of God we can come to our Father and we can ask him for things. Again Jesus says John 14 verse 13 Whatever you ask in my name that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son if you ask anything in my name I will do it. And we are expected to ask of God, to make our requests known to him, to ask things. And nothing is too, too small. Nothing is too great. We may ask him anything. Anything at all. It is not up to us to say I am not sure whether God wants this or not. And obviously if it is something that we know is against God's will is revealed in the Bible, that's another matter. You cannot ask God to bless what is already revealed that he will not bless. But if it is something that is in itself good, we may ask God for it. One commentator has noted, in the final part of the section we read, John has Luke 11, 11. If a son asks for bread for any father among you, would he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? And one commentator has noted that there might be a physical resemblance between these items. We are not thinking, of course, of our modern split tin loaves, you are thinking of something that is basically round and rather lumpy, and grey. So there's a loaf, might very well look like a stone, and a stone might very well look like a loaf. A fish, think of something like an eel, certain kinds of fish look very much like serpents, and certain kinds of serpents therefore look like fishes. And a scorpion that has rolled itself into a ball might look like an egg. And the commentator has noted, it is entirely possible that a son may see the father with a stone and think it is bread and say, will you give me some of that loaf? And then of course the father will not give it, because the son does not realise what it is. Or so it is sometimes with us. We ask God for something thinking it is perfectly alright and we do not realise that to have it, would be a bad thing for us and then God withholds out of love we come to ask of our Father and we ask freely trusting that he knows what is best and if I'm asking something that all unbeknownst to me would be bad for me, he will not give it but he will give me something better he will give me his best not his second best he knows what he's doing. So we ask our Father in heaven. What then are the parts of prayer? Well, we may, we may divide the Lord's prayer several ways to do it. Roughly into two. First of all are those petitions that particularly relate to God, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And we notice that God comes first. It starts off with God and the petitions about Him. Hallowed be your name. But first of all, we recognize who He is He is our Father in heaven. Now, God names Himself. It was instructive uh, to have a peep in that Unitarian hymn book on Saturday. Because, of course, the Unitarians do not believe that God has revealed anything. And so you have several hymns addressing God as our mother. Because the Unitarians do not believe that God has spoken. But God has spoken. And in the Bible, he never speaks of himself as a mother. Now there are
0: illustrations that are somewhat maternal. Uh, uh, Highlight that. Nowhere in the scriptures does God refer to himself as a mother.
2: So, for example, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how would I have gathered your children as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing? But, of course, that is a metaphor. But when God speaks of himself, he speaks of himself as a father. Why is that? Well no doubt it is because of God that God is describing something absolutely always true about himself. And a father is not only a parent, a loving parent who loves the children, also a father has authority. In a properly ordered family the father has authority in a way the mother does not have. A father is a ruler in a way a mother is not. And so a father is a loving ruler of his family. And so we speak of God as our father and we are invoking immediately his love and his authority. His love and his authority. He loves us and he has power and authority over us. And we ask first of all, hallowed be your name. May your name be declared to be holy. Of course God cannot be any holier than he is. He is the holy, holy, holy one. The most holy. But He can be recognized as holy. We are praying that God's name would be recognized as holy; that He would be worshipped for what He is. We come in adoration and worship. Then we pray, "Your kingdom come, Your
0: will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Now listen carefully to what He says here. Is He just read, "Your kingdom, Your Your will be done, Your kingdom come"? Right reverse that but anyway does pastor charmley see the social gospel in here seeking god's rule to be established and expanded
2: now of course that will only finally happen in the new heavens the new earth in which righteousness dwells the kingdom is both now that His God is ruling now in His people. We are all we all confess Jesus is Lord, and therefore His kingdom is in our lives. The kingdom is not to be considered in the sense that the United Kingdom is a geographically recognisable place. God's kingdom is not a place; it is rather kingdom in the sense of rule or kingship so praying that God's kingdom, his rule would be established in our hearts and of course part of this involves praying for mission praying for evangelism, praying for people to be converted that more and more people would be brought under the kingdom of God and that his will would be done on earth as he's in heaven and these two are connected organically connected, it is where God's rules and His will is done. But it will only finally come, only finally be declared that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and his, of His Christ when the Lord Jesus comes again. And then then we come to the petitions concerning ourselves give us this day give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins first of all there is this request and it is significant that we request after saying your will be done first of all we say your will be done and then we ask our, our requests in other words, our requests are subordinated to God's will. You cannot pray, Your will be done, O Lord, and then go on to pray for something you know perfectly well not to be His will.
0: <laughs> Great point. I had never put those two together like that. Great point.
2: You cannot say, Your will be done, and then go on and pray, regardless of His will. You must ask first, Your will be done. And there are times when God's will conflicts with our will, and not necessarily because we are asking for something we should not be asking for. The apostle Paul recalls this notable case in two Corinthians twelve, speaking of the thorn in the flesh, which he calls verse seven, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure concerning this thing this thorn in the flesh a physical illness of some kind I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me and he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness Paul said take it away and God said no this is given to you for a reason and Paul gives the reason which was to keep him from being puffed up with the blessings God had given him and then we come to confession forgive us our sins we ask to be forgiven we are saying that we are sinners we ask to be forgiven we are saying we are confessing to God I have done what is wrong I need to be forgiven I remember I've got a minister I've met who I've mentioned the story before was a candidate ...was put forward as a possible candidate for theological training in the Church of Scotland. And it was his uh, misfortune to come before a very liberal presbytery. He preached before them and they said, well, there's a problem here, young man. You speak far too much about the forgiveness of sins... Now why would a liberal presbytery be so annoyed about people talking about forgiveness? Simply for this reason. Only sinners need to be forgiven. Only perpetrators need to be forgiven. But the great lie that is spread of God is we are all victims. And that is one of the reasons why this language of sin is so difficult for the world to grasp. Now we have this psychotherapeutic language about everyone being a victim. July's Evangelical Times has a cover article dealing with the terrible crime in Cumbria and notes the complete absence of sin language from all media dealing with the event. And Arthur Seo's question, what has become a sin? Sin has been replaced in our culture with psychotherapeutic language. We are all victims now. No, we are not. We are all sinners. It is not that I am a victim of my circumstances and therefore I have committed sin. It is that I am a sinner and therefore I have sinned. And I need forgiveness, not therapy, but forgiveness, pardon. And as long as a man has in his mind that he is a victim, he will never repent. Because he doesn't believe he needs to repent. He will never come to God seeking forgiveness because he doesn't believe he needs it. But sinners need pardon. And notice, give us day by day our daily bread. This is a prayer for daily use. And forgive us our sins. We need daily bread and we need daily pardon. Oh to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. To the old hymn writer. Or Robert Robinson. Let that grace Lord like a fetter. bind my wandering heart to thee. So we come finally to the privilege of prayer. Prayer is not a duty. It is a privilege. Think of what we have said. It is coming to God and speaking to God and asking God to provide our daily needs. It is speaking to God. Is there anything more wonderful than speaking to God? That we guilty sinners may approach Him by Jesus Christ. Prayer is not all in the Bible, it is encouraged. We are encouraged to pray to think of the the wonderful privilege of prayer again in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 20 verse 19 rather therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh picture here is in part of that veil being torn in two at the crucifixion. Christ's body broken for us at the crucifixion, so that we may come in for the presence of God by the broken body of Christ. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, from an evil conscience our bodies washed with pure water we may draw nigh because of the blood of Christ because of his death upon the cross he has died for us and then we may draw near because of the resurrection and eternal life of Christ we are familiar of course with those words in 1 John 2 and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins we have an advocate with the Father and then we have an advocate here on earth to help us the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete the advocate It's the same word as we have seen already and the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. First of all, he helps us by giving us assurance. You, says Paul in Romans 8 and verse fifty. you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you Christians, you receive the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. There is the Holy Spirit in our hearts as an advocate giving us assurance that we are born of God. And then, verse 26, the same chapter, the Holy Spirit is our advocate when we do not know what to pray for. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. We have an advocate above, we have an advocate on earth, With these two advocates we can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. And so then in conclusion we ought always to pray and not to faint. To speak to our heavenly father, to ask of him those things that are, as the old American prayer book puts it, needful as well for the body as the soul. Not just those spiritual prayers for spiritual things, but prayers for our physical necessities, for what is needful for the body as well as the soul, whatever it may be. And we have a perfect model. We have these words that we use weekly in the morning service. And we do so because Christ has said, when you pray, say these words we do so in obedience to his word and we have this perfect model that we can read and we can study and we can see what it is that God wants us to pray for and we have the very best of encouragements in that we have our two advocates our advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous who is the propitiation for our sins, the one whose death has taken away the wrath of God and our advocate the Holy Spirit, who helps us and leads us to pray. And so, indeed, may we rejoice in this wonderful privilege of prayer, and may Christ teach us, as he taught the disciples, to pray.
0: Amen. Amen. Great points. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt him when he was talking about... We pray daily, forgive us our trespasses. That's, uh, <laughs> forgive us our trespasses. We're praying that we're sinners. And we're praying God's will be done. With only, we pray God's will first, and then we offer our petitions to God. Just great, brilliant points. And, of course, Christ and Him crucifying for our sins is the solution. Ah, breath of fresh air. And did you notice the fact that Pastor Charmley, well, he has a British accent. I'll bet you he eats food that's different than the food you eat. I bet you he eats at restaurants differently, different restaurants than you eat at. But he's still, did you hear the gospel? I mean, this was a wonderful, wonderful sermon on prayer and on the Lord's prayer. And it was respectful, reverent. It was in depth that drove us into this, into the scriptures. It was great stuff. <sighs> yeah, no, he, I didn't hear him contextualizing anything. Did you, did you hear pastor Charlie contextualizing anything? Yeah. Again, I, I think the whole contextualization thing is a much to do about nothing. Preach the word, let God's word do what it does. Just like pastor Charlie did great stuff. Just need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith. By the way, it's our two-year anniversary tomorrow, uh, being on the air for Pirate Christian Radio. Yeah, I've been in (laughs) two years. Wow. Anyway, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you'd like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. I bet you Pastor Charmley doesn't wear Hawaiian shirts either, flip-flops, and... And sure, just, you know, just a thought. <laughs> if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith or any previous editions, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for you, for your sins. Amen.